at the center of the alien garden, preparing tea according to a Japanese ceremony she called Chanoyu. She sing-songed the peculiar sounds with such ease, it seemed almost as if English were an acquired language rather than her heritage. Her girlish hands were busy with a whisk, stirring powdered green tea in a rather rudely fashioned Korean bowl of thick, aged pottery. A very ancient oriental woman, dressed in Japanese costume, stood silently behind her, like a protecting deity. Her name is Kinume, explained Karen, in answer to a question concerning the old woman. The dearest, gentlest soul. She's been with me for, oh, centuries. And for an instant, Karen's pretty, exhausted face darkened unaccountably. She looks Japanese, and yet she doesn't, said one of the group in the pavilion. Isn't she tiny? Karen hissed something in what they all took to be Japanese, and the old woman bowed and pattered away. She understands English quite well, said Karen apologetically, although she's never learned to speak it fluently. She doesn't come from Japan proper. She comes from the Luchu Islands. That's the group, you know, that lies on the edge of the East China Sea between Taiwan, Formosa, you know, and the mainland. They're even a smaller people than the Japanese, but better proportioned. I thought she didn't look quite Japanese. There's some question among ethnologists about the stock. It's been said that the Luchuans have Ainu blood. They're hairier and have better noses and less flattened cheeks, as you saw. And they're the gentlest people in the world. A tallish young man with pince-nez glasses remarked, Gentle is as gentle does. How gentle is that, Miss Leith? Well, said Garen, with one of her rare smiles, I don't believe there's been a lethal weapon used in Lu Chu for three hundred years. Then I'm all for Lu Chu, said the tallish young man ruefully. A murderless Eden. It sounds incredible and not exactly typical of the Japanese, I should say, put in Karen's publisher. Karen glanced at him. Then she passed the bowl of tea around. A literary reporter asked a question. Taste it. No, I don't remember Lafcadio Hearn. I was barely seven when he died, but my father knew him well. They taught together at the Imperial University. Isn't it delicious? It was delicious irony, not tea. For the first recipient of the bowl was the tallish young man with the pince-nez glasses, whose name was Queen, and who was present unimportantly as a writer of detective stories. But Mr. Queen could not have been expected to detect the irony then. Recognition was to come later, under less pleasant circumstances. At the moment he remarked that the tea was delicious, although privately he thought it a nasty mess and passed the ball on to his neighbor, a middle-aged male gorilla with the stoop of a student, who refused it and sent it on its way. I'll share everything with you, explained the big man pathetically to Karen, but germs. Everyone laughed, for it was an open secret that Dr. John McClure knew more about Karen Leith than anyone else in the world, and indeed that he proposed shortly to learn even more. His sharply light blue eyes in their chunky setting rarely left Karen's face. Why, doctor, cried a lady who wrote stony, inhibited novels about New England,
You haven't a spark of poetry in you. Dr. McClure retorted, Neither of germs. And even Karen smiled faintly. Manning of the world, who had been trying to recall the year of Lafcadio Hearn's death, finally said, Don't bite me, Miss Leith, but wouldn't that make you about forty? Karen began to stir another bowl of tea calmly. Remarkable, murmured Mr. Queen. That's when life begins, I'm told. Karen's shy and wary glance fixed on Dr. McClure's chest. That's a coincidence. Life begins at fifty, or fifteen. She drew her breath very lightly. Life begins when happiness begins. The women looked at one another, knowing what Karen meant, for she had made her mark and won her man.